starting our series tonight that we're going to be going through this fall uh, in the Gospel of John called Fully Known. And before I read this passage to you, uh, I want to give you a couple of sentences of just background, and we'll get the rest throughout the fall. Uh, John described himself as, for lack of a better term, Jesus' best friend. Super close to Jesus during his lifetime, particularly his last three years. And Jesus was close to John too. John is writing the words I'm about to read to you 60 years, give or take, after Jesus had died, been resurrected, and ascended to heaven. Six decades after. So John has been reflecting on his friend, on the one he came to know as God, his Savior, the lifter of his burdens. He's reflecting for 60 years. His mind is chewing on that. All those experiences, all those conversations, all the gestures that Jesus did to John over the years. And you know what your mind does with memories over time, right? It simplifies them. It purifies them. A mind does with memories like what wine does with grapes. It sweetens it. And so John is, uh, when he's writing, when he's putting pen to paper, all three other gospels have already been written. The details, the data, the facts that Jesus has come. God has fulfilled his promise. He's not left us in our own mess. Those stories have been disseminated and heard. John's not trying to be the fourth guy to the tackle to say what's already been said. In fact, 90% of what's in his gospel doesn't occur, isn't present in the other gospels. John is doing a little bit more art than journalism. That doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's figurative. It means John has had six decades to reflect and think on this. So John is coming at Jesus and describing him to you and me in a different way. And here's how he describes him. John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. That life was the light, the spark of men, of humanity. This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was actually made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. And the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. John speaking autobiographically. I have seen his glory, John says. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace after grace after grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you, our life, our light, our maker. I know my friends, they have lives and weeks like mine. Some of them feel like their faith is hanging by a silk thread in the wind. Some of them are afraid to hope anymore. Some of us assume we're never going to change. 
Some of us are tired of giving this Christianity thing one more shot. Some of us are here because we're intrigued for the first time. Wherever we are, would you, the light, enter that darkness? Dwell with us tonight. Teach us. Heal us. Bring us life, we pray in your name. Amen. You may have heard of this story because it became a national uproar. But on a late July night in 2009, a distinguished Harvard University professor, Henry Louis Gates, uh, was working late at the office. He got back to his Cambridge, Massachusetts row home uh, late at night. He had forgotten his house key, locked himself out. And so that night, uh, he was trying to pick his own lock to get in, fumbling around with stuff, trying to find a way to get through his front door. While he was doing that, a passerby saw him and called the police looked like someone was breaking into somebody's house. And so a few minutes later, the Cambridge police um, pull up, and they say, sir, can you come down here off your porch so we can ask you some questions? We had a, a suspicious report about someone trying to break into this house. And the guy's understandably like, I'm not coming down off the porch. It's my house. I'm just trying to get into my house. And the cops go up and take him off his porch and end up uh, arresting him um, and charging him with breaking and entering. The uproar that followed that uh, largely came because no one could figure out why these officers didn't establish two critical questions. Who is this? What's his identity? And whose house is this? The correlation between those two things is rather important, right? But they didn't get answers to that. I don't know if they couldn't or they didn't or they just didn't have a category for why someone like that would be trying to get into a house in that kind of a neighborhood. And so he was arrested for breaking into his own house. Now, what's the, why, this, why this story? I think those are two critical questions that we have to ask at the beginning of a passage like John 1 as well. Who is this person John's describing who's coming into the world? That's a critical question. Who is he? And whose is this? This place, planet Earth, this turf, your life, our cities, whose is it? The correlation between those two things is very important. Uh, and our response to Jesus will largely be shaped on how you answer those two questions. Who is he and whose is this? Or who, whose am I? If we see Jesus as um, not who he said he was, but kind of a religious fabrication, Jesus is the product of his friends back in the first century who wanted to elevate him to kind of celebrity status, be the founder of a new religion. If that's who he is, then it's, Legitimate. It makes sense why someone would say, well, then who is he to impose his authority on the whole world? That's a very legitimate question and a, and a good question. So if Jesus isn't who he said he is, we have problems. Also, if this earth isn't his, but it's ours, it's our domain, earth belongs to us, your life belongs to you, then it doesn't matter who Jesus is or who he says he is, he's an intruder, right? <laughs> it's you, or it's ours, and he's here, and it doesn't matter why he's here. We kind of have leverage over him to let him in or not let him in, to tell him where he can go or where he can't go. And maybe some of you um, feel this personally. Maybe there's some resentment about man, Christianity or Christians or God is so presumptuous that he has authority over me, that he can call me his, or think that these things that are said in the Bible apply to me too. Maybe that's a live issue for you. But let me ask you this, what if what John is saying is true? What if what I just read, what many of you are probably familiar with, what if that is true? 
that this is Jesus who is God coming to his turf, as it were, opening the handle into his world that he made, that belongs to him, that he loves. How you answer those two questions really shapes how you'll view the rest of this passage and whether you will feel like God is an intruder into your world and into your life and into our culture, or if it's his to begin with, and he's here for some other reason. So if we're going to know Jesus and if we're going to receive him, we've got to get clarity on these two questions, and that's what I want to spend the next 10 or so minutes getting clarity on. First, who is Jesus? Um, John does not describe him like our memes of Jesus describe him or like a children's Bible describe him or like most of us who even talk about Jesus. John is dropping some heavyweight stuff, and he's just moving right on. He's God. He's the Logos. He's, he has life. He's the light of the world. And he just doesn't stop to explain any of these things. He just asserts it. So what does it mean that Jesus is these things? Well, the first thing is he says is that Jesus is the word. And in Greek, that means logos. And we're not going to do a deep dive into what that means. All you really need to know right now is to a Greek ear, which is largely the ears that were hearing this for the first time, to a Greek ear... That, didn't, that wasn't just kind of a synonym for word. It meant something. The logos in their society was kind of this overarching principle. It was divinity with a capital D, supreme. There was nothing higher, better, more important, more essential to the fabric of life and identity in the universe than the logos. This kind of idea, this philosophy almost, and John is saying that Jesus is that, which already we're getting a very different description than what anybody at that time and probably anybody today would describe God if they had to. John starts by saying Jesus isn't an idea. He's not an ideology. He's not a religion. He's not a thought process. He's a person, and he's over everything. And then he goes on and he says this other big, huge thing. He says, Jesus, he doesn't say Jesus is close to God. Like he's a really godly person. Like he kind of had a direct line to God. Like we have a lot of historical figures where you're like, that was a really religious person, a really godly person. They were a good human being. John doesn't say that about Jesus. John says, not he was close to God or just with God. He says he is God. Which means that everything that's true about God is true about Jesus. He's eternal. Jesus is omnipotent, can do whatever he wants, whatever he pleases. Jesus is omniscient, knows everything. Everything is fully revealed in front of him. There are no secrets. He's sovereign. He's in competition with nobody. He's not asking permission from anybody. He's not waiting on any cultural or societal or geopolitical dynamic to play out to see what he's going to do next. He's in control of it all. He is God, John says. And then he says this, beyond that, all things were made through Jesus, which if you grew up in the church, you're familiar with Christianity, you're probably like, I get it. I agree with that. But you might be thinking, and I think our minds are prone to think, okay, all religious stuff, like spiritual things, my heart, my emotions, my spirituality, Jesus is kind of in charge of all of that. He made it. And John anticipates that. And he says, no, 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 no. I wasn't done yet. It's not just that Jesus made all things. He says there's not a single thing in existence, material or immaterial, that does not have on the bottom of it a little sticker that says made by 
Jesus, sustained by Jesus. Paul will say in the book of Colossians later, made for Jesus. So John and and the, the writers of the Bible are bookending all of human history and saying, it all began with Jesus making all of this. It's all about Jesus in the middle. It's all gonna end in pointing to Jesus. Again, this is not the Jesus of children's Bibles, not the Jesus of memes, not the Jesus of contemporary culture, who's kind of a a quiet, well-mannered religious figure. This is Jesus dripping in raw power and using that power for your good. John says he's the creator. He goes on. John says that Jesus is life. Not that he's a lively guy, not that he's the life of the party, but that he is life. He's the headwaters of life. Anything in your life that you're like, I love that thing, it's so alive, is just a distant tributary from the headwaters of Jesus Christ himself who is life and is the giver of life and the sustainer of life. John says that this life was the light of men. What he means by that, I think, is Jesus in his life was the spark, the animating energy, the spark of humanity. And I don't think he's saying that kind of like sentimentally. I think he's saying it historically. There was a time when the spark of all humanity was Jesus himself before the fall. There was a, every person in this room, whether you know Jesus, love him, like him, don't like him, don't know him, don't know what I'm even talking about. The Bible says you have history, not just with some deistic thing up there, but you have history with Jesus a long history, an ancient history. He's familiar to you and you're familiar to him. You're fully known to him. It's like if you saw him somewhere and you like faintly recognize, like, do we know each other? And he's like, I've made you and I've sustained you every moment of your life. If you're not a Christian, this sounds like crazy talk because you might be thinking, I thought Christians kind of pushed the envelope already, but this is ridiculous because John is saying, just unbelievable and unimaginable things about Jesus. And yeah, like, welcome to the party. The Bible claims to be speaking truly about reality and interpreting the world as it is. And the Bible unapologetically says, Jesus is God and everything in your life and this world is all about him. Makes no apology about that. Just asserts it and then demonstrates it. Now listen, let's pause for a second because some of you might have a philosophical mind. You're like, I get it. This makes sense to me. But a lot of us, this still seems a little abstract. You're like, when's this going to hit the pavement and get traction in my week, my life? And I think this last question we'll look at will help shed some light on that. So we've gotten a little bit of clarity from John about who is this Jesus who's knocking on the front door trying to get in? John says, the homeowner, the maker of all of this. It's his house. He's come home. But why is he here? There are certain people, just in life, I guess, whose presence always demands an explanation. The cops. You can't just sit in your apartment and three cop cars roll up right to your apartment and just sit there. You're like, why are the cops here? Fire trucks, ambulances. What's going on in the neighbor's house? If you looked over at another seat tonight and your parents were here, you'd be thinking immediately, why are they here? You go to your best friend's house and your ex is there and you're like, why is he here? There are certain people for whom just their presence demands an explanation. And I think 
we should ask that question of God a lot more often. Why is he here? God? The Savior of the world? Why did God send God? That demands an explanation. We should be curious about that. Like a bunch of cops show up, we should ask, what happened? God shows up, you should ask, what happened? What's he doing? Why the creator? Why the fountain of life? Why the light of the world, the spark of humanity? Why the word who reveals God? Why did Jesus have to come? Why not a prophet? Why not a really charismatic, gifted teacher? He has amazing podcasts. You watch their YouTube videos all the time, and they kind of straighten you out kind of give you a foothold to get your life back together. Why not that? Why not a priest who can kind of sit down with you over lots of coffees and kind of hear your story and work on your insides and help you realize yourself a little bit more and fix your spiritual life, get your spirituality back on track? Why not a priest? Why not a king to raise a flag and rally around a cause for changing some system or being about some cause? Why not a king? Why did God send God? When you begin to get into this and you realize our predicament, the reason God came is no one other than God could put all of this back together. Ravi Zacharias uh, is, an, is an amazing uh, Indian apologist, and he went on to be with the Lord about a month and a half ago, I think. He says that Jesus came not to make bad people good or good people better, but to make dead people alive. Jesus did not come to adjust us or tweak us or improve us or inspire us or jolt us or call us. He came to resurrect you. And if you know him, some of you are thinking, well, Ben, that was seven years ago. What for me now? Because I'm hopeless again. And he came to sustain your life by the word of his power And he came to now help you day by day live in this resurrection life, even though it feels hard. That's why he came. Why did the light of the world have to come? The light of the world had to come because the kind of darkness you and I are in isn't a metaphorical darkness. It's a real darkness. It's a cosmic darkness. It's powerful. It's way out of our league. It is not something that you and I have any business fighting against. Sometimes we reduce sin or temptation down to this little moral tick that I need to kind of give a little extra effort to and I'll stop looking at porn or stop doing this or stop doing that or stop gossiping. Do you know there's this cosmic force, this tsunami behind that? That's just the tiniest little manifestation of it. The darkness that is in the world isn't just around us either. It's in us. So it is right and good for us to protest things this summer that should have been protested. Injustice should be called out and protested. Evil and violence should be called out and protested. But here's the problem. The darkness that you and I condemn all around us is just as much all inside of us. And we don't know what to do about the darkness inside of us, the addictions inside of us, the partiality and favoritism that we just as much have inside of us. Because we're afraid to protest ourselves because we know we'd be condemning ourselves. And we're like, how am I going to have any hope if Ben is what's the problem and not just you or people around me? Why did the light of the world have to come into the world, come into the darkness? 
because that's the kind of darkness that the world, that you, that I are stuck inside of. And it's inside of us as well. And only the light can banish that towering darkness permanently. Why did the creator come? Because you and I don't need little adjustments. We need a new you and a new me. Not an improved Ben. A whole new transformed Ben is why our my creator had to come. Why did the word of God come? Someone described, so they were asking, what does it mean that Jesus is the word of God, the word made flesh? And I, a helpful description of that was, you know, right now, like, I could just sit up here and look at y'all. Some of you know me. You'd be like, I wonder what Ben's thinking. Like, what's that facial expression mean? But you wouldn't know what I was thinking unless I told you what I was thinking. My words reveal my thoughts. So this person was explaining, what does it mean that Jesus is the word of God, God's word? Jesus reveals this invisible God, this hidden God. He says, nobody has ever seen God, verse 18, the only God. But the one who sits at God's side, Jesus, who is God himself, has made him known. Jesus is God talking. Jesus is God moving into your neighborhood saying, hi, I think you've heard of me. I'd like to get to know you. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God made like you. Knowable. Fully knowable. And so he is revealed, disclosed, exactly what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus, his life. Look at him struggle on the cross for his people. Give his life away to save you from the darkness. Look at him rise up because he is king and he's stronger than death. That's what God is like. And that's why God sent the word. Now, I want to say one very, very important thing to you, and then I want to talk to a few clusters of people in the room and what might be obstacles for you internalizing what we've talked about tonight. The thing that I want you to remember is to be very, very careful. Because every religion that is out there that's ever been invented by humanity from day one forward uh, whether it is secular humanism today, be a good person, fight for the environment, whatever that is, whatever it's moralistic atheism, whether it's Islam, whether it's whatever it is, here's what they all say. Leave your darkness and come to the light. That's what religion says. Leave your darkness. Get off your tail. Come to the light. Don't you want to be enlightened? Don't you want to be free? Come to the light. Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, John 1, have nothing to do with that. Christianity stands alone and says this. The light has come into the world, has come into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Religion gives you a moral imperative. You Use your resources to take action, to fix you. It can pretty it up with God talk all at once. Christianity says the light has come into the darkness and it has come into your darkness. He has come into your darkness. It's not a moral imperative. It's a historical claim of God's mercy in space and in time. That's important. So remember that. To say a few words to a few clusters of people in here that might have trouble believing most of what I've said. Some of you say to all of this, 
This is true for just about everybody else in this room, but it's not true for me because, Ben, you have no idea what kind of darkness I have inside of me or has happened to me or that I've lived in. And you feel disqualified because of that because your sexuality is your secret. Your abortion is your secret. Your frayed relationship with your parents, your hatred for a friend that doesn't know you hate them, it's your secret, it's your darkness. And you're like, how could anybody be with me? How could anybody want to release me from that? And you really struggle with, does Jesus want someone like me? Dane Ortland, uh, who's writing, writing, wrote a book that's back at the book table that I hope a lot of you read this fall called Gentle and Lowly, said, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ, this Jesus, sees the fallenness of the world and your fallenness all around him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. The light voluntarily came into the darkness. You didn't have to beg God to come. You didn't have to ask God to come. He came. Your creator came. Your life came without being asked and entered into this darkness. And that's significant. Some of you, some of you might say, well, I've been looking for Jesus. I kind of believe what you just said. I kind of believe maybe there's room for me at the table, room for a sinner like me, broken like me, guilty like me, with a past like mine, with things I've done. But you wonder, where is he? You feel like all your friends in RUF or your church, it's like they're getting it. They got on the train. Their lives are, there's hope in their lives. But you, you always feel standing on the platform 30 minutes after the train left. And I want to ask you, what if God has already answered the prayers that you've prayed? If you're praying, Lord, help, Lord, save, Lord, I can't see you, I need you. What if he's already come? And what if you need to look in your past, not your present, not your future, to see his provision? A bunch of y'all were in Puerto Rico for this past spring break for our mission trip. I don't know if y'all knew this. Did you know that this summer, uh, Puerto Rico got hit by a massive hurricane a couple of years ago, been struggling to um, get on their feet ever since. Uh, This summer, they were making another request of the US Congress for hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for more hurricane aid. And the Congress denied it. And you're like, how heartless. But do you know why the Congress denied it? Because there had been multiple reports that were proven of warehouses full of food, generators, medical supplies, and other equipment that was never distributed. So they were sitting literally on metric ton after metric ton of aid, of mercy, of grace, of provision, and weren't aware of it. How does that happen? Because I know you can relate to that. The light has come into the world, but I feel so dark. How does it happen? We become so preoccupied with our needs so myopically focused on my lack, on what's wrong with me that we we can't open our eyes to see the light that has come into the world. So friends, if that's you tonight, I'd ask you, do you know you're allowed to talk to Jesus? You're allowed to ask him to sort you out, to come into that darkness, to open your eyes, to lift your chin, to see the warehouses of life and light and grace and truth that he's already 
and history brought in. And I want to end with this. Some of you feel like Jesus plays hide and seek with you. You feel like I found him last week, but now I can't find him anymore. Where is he? Where are you, Lord? Have you ever seen kids play hide and seek? You ever see babysitters? You ever seen that? Kids don't play hide and seek because they like to hide. Kids don't like to hide. What do kids like to do? Be found. So I play hide and seek with my kids, and we get about 37 seconds into the game, and I finish counting to 10, and I say, ready or not, here I come. Almost immediately, they pop out from behind the stuff. Here I am. Kids don't like to hide. They love to be found. Did Jesus Christ, the light of the world, come into the darkness to hide from you? To play games with you your whole life? Almost there? Nope. That's not the way John describes his friend who loved him so well and gave his life for him. John says Jesus is like one of those little kids. He loves to be found. And he loves to find. So, if you feel like you're in a perpetual hide-and-seek game with him, did you know that you are allowed to say, Jesus, I'm so scared because I don't even know where to look for you. I can't see you. All I see is dark. Did you know that you're allowed to pray and ask him to find you? He's up for that. It's what he came to do. Let's pray. All I ask of you is do that. Amen. Amen.